0: been busy making tons and tons of bread this week bread really mm-hmm. yeah bread like the the dough stuff right you know flour water yeast yeah how's that okay how's that going it's good you know it's it's a good way to to work out some frustrations needing that dough and tell you what so so are you telling me you've bought into the pandemic craze of making sourdough or is this bread for something else this isn't sourdough I'm not a hipster bro I I refute that allegation Sourdough is delicious. <laughs> it, it is, yeah. I, I tried sourdough last year and failed pretty spectacular. I, I ended up with this soggy lump of what should have been delicious bread, and it was, I mean, it tasted fine. It was just dense AF. Doesn't sound very good. Yeah. I've seen those bad bread experiments. It's not so good. Uh, but this stuff, I'm just making standard uh, crusty loaf, and uh, it's all its all in the kneading. It's all in the, you know, working. You've you got to work it, girl. You know? Sure. Sure. I love to work it. And is the sandwich bread. Is that what you're doing with it? Uh, yeah. Well, we do it. we we actually went to Trader Joe's for the first time this week. Do you have Trader Joe's up like where you are? Sure we do. Yeah. And uh, we've discovered it's, it's somewhat like from, for the British audience. It's, it's like a cross between uh, Aldi and Marks and Spencer's food hall. It's, there's like only own brand products in this shop. And we found this thing in there called cookie butter. It's like peanut butter. It's a spread. And it goes on bread. And it's like it's like gingerbread meets Nutella on on fresh, crusty bread. I'm telling you, man, there is there are a few meals that are more delicious than that one. Man, you're making me
1: hungry. Well, if you want to spend <laughs> your time learning Something else, maybe you should consider a cloud guru. They are the leader in cloud learning and they have all kinds of modern tech skills, including Linux, that you can learn. Hundreds of courses, thousands of hands-on labs. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. Or, you know, you could learn bread, too, or maybe both. You mean this
0: isn't the bread action show? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> I mean not yet. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Now you just got back from a trip, right? Welcome back. Got back yesterday. <laughs>
1: Still a little tired, you know. Went all the way to Bozeman, Montana, which is one of our favorite destinations. Just a beautiful spot. Had the kids, had the dog, had the wife. So it was a fully loaded bus. And it's also, I think, Alex, the first trip since the big Project RV upgrades, like all of them, including the internet setup, have all been in place. Yeah, nice. I think the last one I recall you took was down to Texas. Yeah. And we didn't have the internet system then. We had the solar system at that point, but we did not have the internet
0: Right, your industrial grade carrier busting. How did that work out? Well, you know,
1: I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty happy. I mean, so the main goal when I'm traveling uh, with the whole family is to have my self hosted system in my RV just be like out of the mind, out of the out of the picture. No, no hassle. Just I call it out of the way automation because it's like facilitating
0: the entire trip, but I don't want to be managing it during the trip. It's like hygiene. You shouldn't have to think about it. The the minute you're thinking about someone else's hygiene like you you know they need to step it up a bit (laughs) and it it definitely it definitely the setup passed past that bar
1: uh it was it was pretty seamless uh really um i had i had reception in areas that i've never had reception before and the whole thing is like i want the whole land to be really solid because the kids are streaming videos off of a raspberry pi or they're playing peer-to-peer networking games and I, I want that connection to remain up, regardless of what the cellular connection is doing. So I've sort of separated it all out. I have I, I have Wi-Fi access points, and I have a router, and I keep and I keep that all separated so that way the router could even be offline theoretically. Because there are times, legitimately, where we're driving through the Cascade Mountains or we're going through po- passes that we just don't have signal. There's just <laughs> nobody has a cell tower on the mountain, <laughs> so we want stuff to work. Um, And even and then when we get back into connectivity, whichever cellular provider is available and we have three on board, I I want that one to pick up and
0: and just start working. That blew my mind the first time we took a trip in the southwest in the the deserts around like Utah and stuff is we went sometimes an entire workday without any coverage. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, it's
1: it is really Washington has gotten really good about it. My home state. Um, We have got towers everywhere except for the tops of the passes. But there are absolutely parts of Montana where there's just no signal we were at and same in Texas still. So what I have for my technology stuff, because I want it all to work really smooth and I just want it to be a really good experience. And it's, it's really when I just need it to be the most hassle-free. So I kind of have a regime before I go into a trip and I have these windows of time. And it uh, this is just something where it's for the entire RV, but the technology stack is part of this. And the first one is what I call my T48 window. And that's 48 hours before a trip. In this T48 window, major changes are allowed to the technology stack, like uh, I did an Ubuntu 2104 update to get all the security fixes in. I installed the latest Home Assistant upgrade. And if I'm going to remove a node from the network or add something to the network, this T48 window is my last chance. 48 hours before we leave, that's my last chance to make a major change like that. Uh, It's also when I'll take snapshots of Home Assistant and my boxes and make sure my backups are off-site, it's a window of time to kind of just do a sanity check on all of my, what if I lose the devices? What if there's something that causes me to, you know, completely lose the storage or something like that? Do I have something in place? You know, just to
0: make sure before I go. You know what's so great about everything you've just said? I, I think you actually have more pre-flight checks than some customers of mine do deploying stuff into production. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, you know, I recently kind of decided to really treat
1: these trips as uh, as kind of an operational thing. And so, and that goes into like finding gas stations that we can fit in and the best routes to take and trying to identify weather conditions and construction. And these these concepts of a T-48 checklist, we expand that too to like making sure we have propane available, uh, double checking reservations. Like it's a it's a lot outside of just the tech stack. And, you know, we also will use this window of time to make a go or no go call possibly on the trip. Maybe something came up. Like this last trip, we had something come up and we're like, well, we should have added that to the T48 checklist. And now that's part of what we're going to do from now on.
0: Oh Hold on, hold on. Y- your checklist has a name?
1: Yeah, T48. Yeah, yeah. That's not just it. We have, it's, yeah, because that's T minus 48 hours until leaving. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I like it. And then we also have the T24 window. Now that's the last, like, crunch time. That's 24 hours before the trip. That's when uh, I break down my home office setup, quote-unquote, in the RV. So I no longer have a PC setup. Uh, so I mostly transition to using my iPad for most of my work, or if I have to, allow, I'll break out my laptop. And this is where the change control committee, a.k.a. myself, says no more big changes. <laughs> 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 Just stop with your crazy updates. I don't care.
0: I love this so much. I can't <laughs> even... Yeah, oh, this this is so good.
1: It works, though. It's like, and I've been in that window before. Where I'm like, oh, I didn't install the Home Assistant update. I'm probably going to be too behind by the time I'm on the road trip. I should do it right before I leave because I'm going to be in a limited or maybe no bandwidth situation on the road. But when I'm in that T24 window, no, no major changes because I don't want to do anything that's going to break and cause me to go on a big project right before we leave. Right. That's what we call in the biz
0: a change freeze window.
1: Yep. Yep. And that is an effect on once the T24 window is in effect. Uh, But you know what I will do during this time is I will manage the media for the trip. This is part of happy family, happy life where I go through because I have only two terabytes of media storage in the RV. So I go through and I purge old movies and shows that we're not watching anymore. And then I kind of load in the fresh stuff because I want content that the kids can watch while we're going down the road that I know is kid-friendly and will also keep them occupied. So little tip for you dads out there. What I start doing, or you moms, is I start collecting a show for them like weeks before the trip, and I don't tell them about it. And I get it all organized like on an external hard drive, and then I load it on the Plex server in this T24 window And then I tell Plex to immediately index and do its thing. So that way, when we set off for the trip, all of a sudden they've just got new content on Plex. Oh, look at this. It's great. And then something else I'll do is I'll look for like a movie or a trilogy. That's what I've been doing is finding family trilogies and loading them on there as well. So while we're on the road, maybe we're at a rest stop for a night or we're at some site where it's really bad weather and the kids are kind of stuck in the RV. We've got movies to watch. Like this year I brought Jurassic Park. Last year I brought Back to the Future. I love the trilogies.
0: Who doesn't love a bit of Jeff Goldblum, eh? Right.
1: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I have not watched Jurassic Park in like forever. And boy, Jeff Goldblum is laying it on thick in that movie. It's thicker else. than
0: my cookie butter on fresh bread.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about it. Um, so, you know, they get all that stuff sorted in my 24 hour window, verify that my LTE networks are all active, that one of my crazy carriers hasn't like canceled my account for some random reason. I'll even reboot my router often just to make sure that comes up fresh and nice and and um, snappy. And and then, I'm, then we set off. And that's kind of my process every time. And it forces me to go through and verify my backups. Kind of forces me to do updates and and figure out what needs updated and what I couldn't do and kind of makes me think about what do I need that I can store offline so that way when we don't have connectivity, life goes on as usual and I think it worked really well you know this kind of trip to montana was one of my one of my use cases in my mind for this whole project off grid
0: that's awesome man like uh, last time you were trying to solve some issues around was it the uh the the various uh voice tubes, the voice assistants. Yeah. And their GPS locations and stuff with them freaking out. How was that this time?
1: So the home pod does all right because it goes often, not always, but by the location of like the primary phone that set it up. But the other stuff is really dumb about it. And so what we just use the other stuff as is reference for what it's like back at home. So when we ask for weather or we see the clock on there, we know that's what the home what time at home is or what weather it is at home. And that's just you know, what really I think solved that problem for me was when I put up the uh, Fire tablets that have the Home Assistant dashboard up all the time and the family can just... They they kind of just prefer to do that anyways.
0: And then I, I still kind of use the tubes, but... You made a point the other day on Linux Unplugged. There's actually a, a great interview on there. And we were torn about whether to use that interview in this show or LUP, and uh, we ended up using it in LUP in the end with Aaron about his converted school bus. yeah. Really cool project. You know, and Alex, he's taken he's taken it to the next
1: level. I'm still not there yet where I'm not pulling all of the metrics out of my electrical system and putting it into Home Assistant, but he's done it. He's done it with um, some Raspberry Pis and a little box that Victron makes called the Venus. And he gets all that information in there, and I love that idea. And then what I want to do is kind of gamify it a little bit. And I, I saw another post recently that uh, from a dad who took Home Assistant And put family chores in there and the family checks off the chores via the home assistant Lovelace dashboard and it generates points. You saw that? I saw that one, yeah. It's such a great way. (laughs) I love to do that, but with power to kind of encourage and incentivize the family to conserve power. Uh, Although on this trip, Alex, legitimately, the solar system was totally enough. I was worried that 600 amp hours of lithium would not be enough power for a full family. But when you get some good solar coming in like we had on this trip we had good solar every day and you're doing just a little bit of driving so you also charge from the alternator i'm not exaggerating when i say we had unlimited power we had more power than we could use for the for the nearly two weeks we just lived life like as if we were hooked up to the grid and i never had to you know tell the kids turn off the lights or don't turn that tv on I do still struggle with some overheating problems. I had my my power system overheat once when it was pretty hot out and we were really pushing it. And I was really trying to see how hard I could push the system in general. <laughs> and it, it did like a safety shutdown on me and turned, turned off the power to everything, <laughs> including the servers.
0: Well, I mean, if you're doing a life hack where you're using the sun to power your air conditioner to cool you down, as well as, you know, running a toaster or whatever else you're doing.
1: Yeah, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of one of those situations where when you have that much sun, it creates enough heat that you need to run the air conditioning and you end up trying to balance it all out. Um, And I was really pushing it. Oh, and we'd been driving. And of course, the drivetrain itself gets hot. So where our power bay is at, you know, there's heat from the drivetrain too, adding to this whole thing. (laughs) It's just uh, so, yeah, I'm very happy with it. I do have to seriously figure out cooling, but it just is going to involve major cutting into the side of my RV. And I just don't want to do that. But one day, and I need to get that data into Home Assistant. I've got to get that figured out as well. Uh, And then ultimately, Alex, I would love to be managing this entire thing with some system that allows me to redeploy everything from scratch. So if a Raspberry Pi died from heat or everything died and I had to pop in new units, when I'm on the road, it would be a minimal amount of downtime and just totally be able to redeploy my infrastructure from one central point. And I know that's something we want to talk about today, but it's been on my mind because that seems like the next level I could take this setup to to make it even more trouble-free. And when there is a problem, a couple of Raspberry Pis in the drawer, I pop them in and I run some sort of system and they're back up and running. Okay, I'm out 45 minutes. That's that's where I want to take it next. So data from the power system, figuring out cooling, and doing some kind of infrastructure as code setup are my next goals for Project Off Grid.
0: I love your optimism that you've only got a couple of Pis in the drawer. <laughs>
1: And I should probably have a switch and maybe a whole other router because <laughs> that stuff gets hot.
0: Power supplies, don't forget those.
1: Yes. Yeah, everything, the stuff in the in the, in the the telco cupboard.
0: How's the bench seat?
1: It gets hot. It gets really hot. The bench seat's also getting hot, but less equipment in there. It's better now as I've moved, as I've dispersed stuff now that I have power over ethernet. I've kind of spread stuff out. Yes. So the
0: thermal load is not as bad, but... <sighs> It's still not where it still need it still needs a solution. I'm still not happy. Poe is just so awesome. I was uh, putting a TV on the wall in my kitchen the other day, and I've got one of these Unify units that's powered over Ethernet, and and on the bottom it's got a couple of uh, Ethernet jacks on the bottom, and so rather than running a whole second Ethernet cable from wherever in the house, which would have been a good couple of hundred feet worth of of cable, I just plugged one tiny little right angle jack into the bottom of this Unify thing fed it up through the drywall and out behind the TV just above it, and it was so easy. Yeah, those are the kinds of solutions that feel like
1: like life hacks because you just saved yourself an hour or two
0: <laughs> of running cable. And who <laughs> enjoys fishing cables through walls, man, and, and crawl spaces? Not me, I'll tell you that. <laughs> now, you know I have a bit of a thing about GUIs, and I prefer to do things on the command line, don't you? That is totally true. The one exception to this rule for probably seven or eight years, has been my firewall for some reason. I've allowed myself to run PFSense, and then I moved to OpenSense last year. You know, I've thought about that, and I've meant to ask you why that is. I don't know. It's not rational. Maybe it's
1: you always do something that way, and
0: so you go on doing it that way, perhaps? Yeah, that must be it. Like, And, and I came to the conclusion that with my home lab setup, where I'm spinning up and down OpenShift stuff all the time, and I'm constantly adding... Uh, MAC address reservations for new smart devices that arrive, you know, I get a new phone or a new Shelly device pops up or, or whatever it is, I feel like I'm logging into OpenSense three or four times a week to make some small tweak for some reason. Now, that's fine if you, you know, think about it. It's, it's not really that big of a deal, but I would prefer to just make one config line change in an Ansible repo or something and then run a playbook and it's done. So I have finally bitten the bullet and written a playbook to turn an old Raspberry Pi three B plus that I have into my DNS and DHCP server. Da, da, da. Very nice, and and uh, you think a Raspberry? I mean, yeah, it should be powerful enough for what you've got. How many how many devices on your network would you say? Uh, I think I've got like hundred and fifty or so, but I mean, it's it's not like um, you know the performance of a DHCP server. This this is this is ancient history technology you know that those servers have been around as long as the internet has pretty much that those technologies and uh, they they need such minimal resources the only thing i was worried about with the raspberry pi using that for dhcp and dns was it's a pi right i mean it's logging to an sd card but then i can just usb boot and put logs into ram and ship them off to some remote server if i really want to keep them um so i think i can work around that but What I ended up doing was uh, using this as an exercise to remind myself how much I enjoy writing code. (laughs) It's not something I do as much as I would like anymore. And um, one of the most difficult challenges I found, actually, was uh, making Ansible look at a list of MAC addresses that I'd supplied and check for any duplicates. I mean, it sounds like a really simple thing. And, you know, probably to some people it is. But to, to me, I felt like I was working on the Da Vinci code, solving this one. I have one uh, big list of dictionaries with multiple subkeys and sub-elements within them, right? So it's, you know, name, IP, and MAC address, for example, which corresponds to a specific device or a specific host on my network. So I can go in and iterate over those um, keys using Ansible over those sub-elements using Ansible, and, and pull out the bits of information that I need to generate the config files, which then get deployed onto the Raspberry Pi using Ansible. But uh, what was really difficult was actually trying to control the, uh, the flow of variables using facts using Ansible. And there's a code snippet in the show notes if you're interested, but what I ended up doing was reading the list of MAC addresses into a, a fact and then comparing it against itself to be unique using one of Ansible's built-in filters. And uh, I'm sure very few people listening to this are going to ever want to solve the problem that I solved, but I'm incredibly proud of this bit of code. <laughs> so I thought I'd talk about it on the show.
1: That's a nice solution. And uh, kind of kind of just works towards what I was talking about, how in a way what you've done is you've you've let the computer solve a problem
0: for you that I would just spend human hours burning. <laughs> I spent probably two evenings uh, whilst I was rocking a baby to sleep <laughs> in one hand and trying to code in the other. Productive, right there. That's <laughs> solving this problem. Yeah, yeah. Those those late nights are productive for some for some reason. And what was really interesting, actually, was for, for my testing, I ended up using uh, my ESXI lab, and I created a second virtual network interface on on that. Uh, system and then I span up a an isolated network within my network to test DHCP because obviously I, I didn't want to turn off my primary DHCP server because well I kind of need that for everything that goes on most days. So I ended up with a completely separate subnet within uh, VMware that I was able to test it and I was able to have OpenSense actually running as a firewall on this virtual network running within VMware. It was was really cool. And I, I really think that if you're remotely interested in networking, that there are just little projects like this you can do to kind of stretch yourself and challenge yourself where you can learn little bits and bobs here and there. And uh, I don't know. I just had fun doing it.
1: Yeah. Push yourself in a way that it solves a problem and you learn something and that solving a problem, something that's been on your mind for a while, is such a good motivator. It's such a great way to get into something, or in your case, maybe take something to the next level. People ask all the time, like, where should I get started? How should I get started? That's how.
0: By, by It's a cliche to say it, but scratch that itch. Absolutely true. Now, speaking of, uh, we've been using something called Slexi on JB for many, many years. This goes back to Linux Action Show days. Excuse me?
1: Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's a bad name, Slexi.org, but it was a good tool. Yeah, dude, you old, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. And I could see the signs coming because every now and then the service would be offline for a couple of hours. And And then it came back strong for a bit. It was just a clean paste bin that supported basically every language on the planet, including my beloved Markdown even. And was really simple for for us as a team to take, like, emails that come in or, or or messages on Discord and throw them in something that we could link the other hosts to and link them in our show notes. And it really wasn't something that was necessarily intended for public consumption, although it could be in some cases. But it was mostly just so that way you have, like, you know, 15 different platforms, messages come in for a show, and we could take them and have one central spot. And so it was Slexi.org. And then like so many things, when the cloud giveth, the cloud taketh. And uh, at the beginning of March, they announced they were shutting down, and uh, and I, I was I was beside myself, Alex. And I, I looked over to you, Alex, and I said, Alex, save us!
0: This is clearly something we should self-host. <laughs> well, I think we might have found a solution in a project called Xbin, and this is over on GitHub at midnight slash xbin, midnight spelt with a one. Uh, instead of an i just look in the show notes so that there'll be a link there for you and this project's actually really interesting it's a very simple interface which is you know what chris needs after a late night let's be honest yeah and it just boom pops right up and there's a text field You just paste the stuff in there pow it's
1: good it's really quick
0: and i've actually been working with the developer i've opened probably more issues than i should have on his github and he's been honestly fantastic he's added for just for us on on our request custom logo support uh, the ability to moderate comments, as well as a couple of other things as well, and that's neat. Yeah, I you know sometimes you just love open source so much that some some random guy who I will probably never meet in person is willing to put some time and effort in to help us adopt his thing by adding features that we ask for. It's just so cool. It really is great to see. It's actually so hard to overstate the point you just made. There is an internal
1: tool that we use as a team to produce our shows, and you contact the developer, or developers, and they're actually going to implement those features. Think about that in the context of, say, like subscription enterprise software. You could be paying thousands of dollars a year and not get that kind of service level. And it's MIT licensed, so it's you know it's it's a really permissible license. And uh, and I just think it's super wonderful
0: to see it. Uh, do we have a demo for folks so they can check it out? We do, yes. We're actually using it for all of our feedback for this episode. So at paste.docs.lol, that's now the Jupyter Broadcasting Paste Bin. We're going to just use it for show notes and, uh, well, not show notes, uh, feedback into shows and stuff like that. So I think we're already using it on Coda, but you'll see it in other shows as we go forward. There is an actual official project demo linked in the show notes as well. It's really just a nice, easy-to-use Paste Bin clone with some great features.
1: It's written in Phoenix and Elixir. And I think one of the things that's appealing to us is it's
0: pretty easy and straightforward to self-host it. Now, have you seen the stats page that it has? So if you, if you go to URL of your instance slash stats, you can see how many public snippets have been made and you know the number of views they're getting, the most popular one, all that kind of stuff. I mean, kind of pointless, but also who doesn't love a good graph, eh? If you want to see
1: ours, you can go to paste.docs.lol uh, and then it's slash stats, like Alex said. Look, so we've had 11 public snippets I make most of mine public so we've done I guess 11 emails on this thing so far it's interesting that it, it what, what qualifies as popular is 8 people viewed one of them <laughs> which is really just us it's just the people in JB. Uh but yeah you know, it's great that it shows that
0: it runs in Docker of course I wouldn't honestly have looked at it. If it didn't, uh, I'm running it up on a a Linode. I think it's uh, up to about 15 containers, that single $5 Linode now. (laughs) hard to overstate how awesome that is, really.
1: Yeah. So please be nice to it and don't break it because it's a tool we use for daily production. And we're uh, we're opening the Komodo a little bit,
0: telling you about it. (laughs) And now in a feature that I think may well be aimed exclusively at Wes Payne, you can actually use Netcat to pipe text to xbin
1: when i saw that i was like this is so for wes and this is so great but it's actually just a very quick way and if you're already on the command line the fact that you could netcat something to your paste bin, your self-hosted pastebin solution
0: that's a winning feature (laughs) i'm sorry that's great now i know we use hedge for all of our show notes and stuff and our internal collaboration but xbin also has a synced text mode so you know if, if you click on uh, in the UI, there's a button that says "Synced." Uh, it will give you a five-digit custom code in in the URL you give to whoever you want to, you know, watch in real time what you're doing. You know, and and I can just type away, and in in real time, it will update whoever is looking at that URL what I'm doing. Which for like pair programming or something like that, I can see this being absolutely awesome. Yeah, just a quick scratch space
1: to uh to collaborate on a note and then be able to generate a URL for that, I that
0: that's going to come up all the time. You just don't even know how many ways you're going to use it. We've got some feedback from Kevin in Belgium. Uh, love the show, guys. Keep it up. In the last episode, there was some talk about pooling different bits of storage over the network. In the past, I've used Greyhole to do this. I was able to pool two different machines into one virtual storage presented via Samba. Brackets. Yes, I know. <laughs> It worked for me for many years until I switched to one new machine pooling all drives using MergerFS, using the, I uh, I don't wish to blow my own trumpet here, but the, the now famous perfect media server guide. <laughs> yeah, yeah see, it is. People love that. It's a great, it's a great guy. So I took a look at Greyhole. It's actually a pretty interesting project. And uh, yeah, p- pooling different bits of storage using Samba. It, I mean, that's it. That's the pitch for the product. I wonder what you think of this, Alex, compared to just something like Merger FS with a
1: Samba share on top, because ultimately you'd get similar results. But the difference with Greyhole is it's taking care of the network layer for you and also the sort of the organization via the web UI if you want, which I know triggers you sometimes, but it does have a web UI if you want. I love a good UI. What are we talking about? I love (laughs) that. Okay. All right. Fine, fine. You won't engage, but I know. I know. Um, So Greyhole, think of it as uh, a way to pool a bunch of shares across your network uh, into one big share, right? That's sort of a fair summary of it?
0: Yeah, pretty much. And the underlying shares, it's a bit like GlusterFS in this regard. So you've got different, effectively, bricks of storage, which you then concatenate together into one mega tron of storage yeah nice feature is that you can set redundancy on a per share level so you can indicate how many copies of each file you want to keep as well which you know if if you've only got one copy of something you may as well have zero copies of it
1: i know this is popular with the audience because we got several emails about it as the as the recommendation when i put out the question of how are you how are you pooling your storage i have to say overall it's a solution that feels kind of like an old school approach and it has been around forever so that might be part of it but I'll give you an example like to get it up and going the, via their docs you start by curling a, sh- a shell script and then you know pseudo bashing that um, you could do it manually but either way you end up just stalling a, a ton of stuff on your box um, it really does and that's just a thing I don't really enjoy anymore and then there's quite a bit of configuration to essentially build up a whole system based on finicky Samba shares, um, which I again Totally appreciate and think there is a spot for that, and I could even see it. Like if if I was in, if I was in like a, a condo with a couple of roommates, like I was, you know, twenty years ago, I could definitely see us using each of our PCs in a system like this, and it working really well for what we want. But I just don't really see it today. The, the way this setup works, Alex, it just doesn't seem doesn't quite seem like it's it. Like it's not quite the solution I was looking for. So. When I tried it, I, I, I that was my that was my impression.
0: We also had some feedback come in from Greg, uh, also recommending Grey Hole. And his point was that each drive is a standalone file system. So losing just one drive doesn't affect the data on the others, which is useful. But uh, I don't know, to me, this is, I, I know you asked the audience to send in their opinions, but it, it, it feels to me like this is a solution looking for a problem. And then people have kind of built some reliance on it. And it's kind of, it's a Jeff Goldblum moment, right? Just just because we can. Your scientists were so obsessed with whether they could. They didn't stop to think about whether they should, right? And I think that's it. I think that's my impression of it. But I
1: do like I do like hearing how it works for people. And we did get several people that said it works well for them and that's kind of awesome because I know Greyhole's been around for a long time and I'm 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 glad to see it's still going. The web UI does make it simple to get up and going. You can go in there, the first thing you do is you add some storage to it and then uh, it lets you get things set up and and that's nice. That's good to see it. But I don't know, I guess this sounds really dumb when I go to say it out loud, but you know what I'd really like is I'd love a solution at the ZFS level where there was some kind of service where you you could you could dedicate any partition formatted in ZFS or any disks dedicated to ZFS could become part of
0: some sort of network ZFS pool. That's where I'd love to see that work get done. That would be nice, yeah. The tricky part of this, I think, is you don't know what OS the remote system is running. And with, with ZFS in particular, licensing is so difficult such a touchy subject, whether you could actually have ZFS running as some kind of a container on that remote system, and then say, here's a 100 gig, you know, virtual disk, a bit like Docker desktop works like, maybe that's the way to do it. All right, well, Rob writes
1: in, and Rob's been, been using quite a few containers recently and been running with like 50 terabytes of content. And while that's been fine for Rob, he kind of wants to take things to the next level. And he says, so do you have any advice or resources? for folks out there like me, who maybe know just enough to be dangerous, but don't actually know how things are working under the hood of Unraid. Like, do you have a beginner's guide for folks who maybe know just a bit, but not as
0: much as they could or really should yet? Thanks for the help, Rob. Well, I think, Rob, you're exactly the type of person I had in mind when we were founding linuxserver.io. You know, it's, it's all about finding some good sources of documentation. And I think Something like perfectmediaserver.com may well be a good place to start if you're looking to build your own box. But websites like linuxserver.io, as well as... Th- there's a few other things like the self-hosted wiki, um, self-hosted subreddit. But this is, this is the magic of containers, right? They allow you to walk before you can run. And I think that is a huge tick in the pro column for containers. Back in the day, I think a lot of people kind of kept Linux because they were like, well, you need to, you know have your neckbeard badge to be able to do this particular thing on Linux and install these 59 packages in a specific order and then recite some incantations to do as, you know, just to get a simple Samba server going. Whereas nowadays you can just, if you want to run Samba in a container and type Docker run Samba. And it has a little more to it than that, but effectively you are now piggybacking off the shoulders of giants, right? That that's the whole purpose of containers. You're, You're basically outsourcing a lot of the sysadmin stuff to other people, like building these containers. You're outsourcing those decisions about what goes into them to other people who you maybe trust more than you trust yourself, which, you know, certainly as a newbie is probably a wise decision. Maybe as you mature your approach to building systems, you'll decide that actually I know better and I want to go and build my own stuff. But I wouldn't say what you're doing is necessarily wrong. Just use the stuff that Unraid lets you use. There's a, there's a reason you picked Unraid, right? And and that's because it has a simple-to-use user interface. You can use their templates to click and install stuff. I mean, keep doing what you're doing, man. That's what I say.
1: Yeah, you could absolutely just keep using that, and you can mess around with VMs on your local box. Or if you are ready to build something, I'm going to double down on Alex's recommendation to go by the perfect media guide because... Which, if uh, I don't know if you said, but is that perfectmediaserver.com? Because that gives you the projects to really kind of branch off from there. Um, I'm not quite as pro magic server sauce as Alex is. That scares the crap out of me a little bit from just a security standpoint, because ultimately it's not understanding how the system works that leads people to make security mistakes. But I do agree with your point. In most cases, the people designing the containers for popular applications and projects probably know more about what's going on in there than Rob might. You know, the people creating the application know a hell of a lot of about it. So you're generally going to be all right, but it's definitely worth learning, but it's really easy to learn. And I, Rob, I wish that I wish the built-in tooling was better at explaining to you, like, these these four containers are using this same layer, and it's, it's all possible to discover, but I wish it would tell you in terms of, like, and that is this, this, these applications and this layer of libraries in Linux. I wish it was more, if you could understand it in those terms, I think you'd start, it'd start to click for you. So what I would recommend you do is pick a container software of choice, go out there and read about Podman, go out there and read about Docker, and um, then start playing, get inside the containers, learn how to do that, and explore them, and just see what that's like and understand what's inside there. And Then you start to realize, you know, it's good things, it's easy to get going, It's it's generally pretty well built, but there's also a lot of old libraries in there sometimes and you're relying on them to update the software and, and, and maintain the security for applications you're running on your stack. And so you just need to be cognizant of the trade-offs. And I think the way you start that is by learning. And then, you know, you can take advantage of tooling around that to maybe get a better insight into what they're doing. But ultimately, don't feel bad for using Unraid. They are building a good product. I think both Alex and I are not currently Unraid users, but we think it's a pretty solid product. And I think it's one of those tools that helps people get going and gets their data off of something like Google and gets it on their own land. And that's ultimately
0: something that we're both big fans of. Yeah, Unraid was how I got started. And then I ended up trying to build some packages for myself for some apps that weren't on the platform. And like Chris says, trying to exec into a container, like figuring out what that means and Sort of getting a shell inside a container and poking around and breaking some stuff. You know, it's that's how I got started. So, absolutely a good route to go. Now, Martin writes in that in the latest episode you were wondering about one-way phone backup, and for Android he recommends an app called Folder Sync. I can't recommend it enough. Hmm, thank you, Martin.
1: Folder Sync. We'll have a link to that in the Play Store, as you would imagine. Surprise, surprise, it allows simple sync to cloud-based storage from your local folders on your phone and SD card on your Android device. (laughs) It does exactly what it says on the tin, and it's free. It does offer, I guess, an in-app purchase to remove the ads, but it looks pretty clean and straightforward. Gosh, and it supports everything, it looks like.
0: Martin says it automatically recognizes where he is based on SSID, and then it backs up to the appropriate local NAS system so that he has multiple physical copies, which is a really nice feature. I think I've used an earlier version of this, actually. I think I have, and I liked it. Now, I use the NextCloud clients on my phones to back up all my photos and things like that. Those those are primarily the files that are created on my mobile devices that I want to get off of those devices, it doesn't require any plugins in Nextcloud. It's just built into the standard iOS and Android clients as well. But I think if, if I was creating something else regularly on my phone that wasn't a photo or a video, Folder Sync looks like it would be the solution.
1: A big thank you to our site reliability engineers at SelfHosted.Show/SRE. As a thank you, you get a limited ad version of the show and extra show you get the post show. Uh, today, we're going to chat about Alex's very first computer and how he got his very start in computers. I'm looking forward to that. I don't think I've ever heard that story. Uh, so if you would like to join our membership, support the show, and get access to the
0: limited ad version with the post show, go to selfhosted.show/sre And join us next week on Linux Unplugged for a special episode where we go through some of the self-hosted Google Photos alternatives. That'll be episode 409. Now, for all the ways to get in touch with us, you can go to selfhosted.show slash contact. And you can find me on Twitter at Ironic You can find me on Twitter. I'm at chrislas. You can find our sponsor,
1: Cloud Guru, on social media. They're just slash the Cloud Guru everywhere, like on Twitter. The show is
0: at selfhostedshow as well. And thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 46. So tell me about your first computer. It was beige. Yeah, I bet it was. <laughs> you are of that age, after all. It was beige and it had a, a, a little compact logo on the front. Oh yeah, the compact. Was it a Presario? I think it must have been. I think it was a 386 was my first was my first computer. I'm I'm not talking about the ones at school because we had BBC Acorns there at school, I think. Did you? Oh neat. Yeah, we had IBM PS2s at my school. Um but I think my dad rescued it in air quotes from a skip at work. (laughs) And I I don't know. I mean, back then, of course, you know, the, the cycle of desktop computers was you had to replace them every year or so. Otherwise they were incredibly slow and behind the times because that's just how fast technology was moving on at that point, I guess. And this three, eight, six, I loved it. I used to play a game called championship manager, which was a a soccer kind of football manager game. And it just had a, basically a text based, like a two E interface almost where you'd go through and you'd select different players and build your team and then it would play out virtual matches for you and I I loved that thing.
1: Yeah, I had some great games back then. Some really fun ones. Just so did the system have DOS on it or did it have Windows 3.1 back then?
0: I think it was 3.1 and and the reason I say that is because the earliest memory I have of of being interested in computers was I had I had Lemmings on a I think it was a 5 and a quarter inch <laughs> disket. sure. Uh, in this thing, and I brought it home from school for the weekend or something like that because uh, we didn't we didn't own Lemmings, but I think I brought it home from school. And I put it in the three eight six, and my dad sort of helped me get it installed, and we got it working one time. And he put a shortcut on the well, it wasn't the desktop back then, was it? It was like the little sub sub windows within the the interface, I suppose, of three point one. Yeah, and I remember that I had to type Win. Like, it booted up to a C colon prompt, and I had to type win yeah. to load up Windows.
1: Man, you could always add, you could have just added it to your auto-exec
0: bat file, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I think I was probably a, I want to say, like, seven or eight at this point. So, you know, I don't think I'd have quite understood the concept of an auto-exec bat.
1: <laughs> Mostly my early exposure, you know, was... Um, i had i had a trash 80 as a kid and that was really my first computer and then my mom got me a used mac plus really early on i had that for a bit um, and then my dad got uh, a couple of heliot-packard machines and so we went that direction for a while and then when i got into school it was unix and linux for a while it was a, it was just all over the place all this there were so many crazy hardware manufacturers back then everybody was into making a pc when i was a kid and as i Got older, they all kind of faded away and begun begun to cons- consolidate. And Compaq was one of the last of the big ones to go. They were they were around till
0: nearly the very end of that consolidation period. You've been an Apple wanker for what twenty five years now,
1: on and off. Yeah, on and off. <laughs> I really have. I you know, it's funny. Is one of my first. I'm going to try to tell the full story one time when I get an interview. But one of my first. Linux experiences was I got Red Hat CDs from a Microsoft staffer where they were checking it out at Microsoft and were curious about this Red Hat thing. And then when they were all done, like they had the extra CDs and stuff. And so they gave them to me because <laughs> I was a family member who gave them to me. And so I ended up playing around with Red Hat for a while. And that was, that was probably, it was really, really a long time ago because I mean, I can't remember very clearly anymore, but I seem to recall it had like a, like a redneck language you could choose or something like that in the language settings of Red Hat's installer. Or maybe it was Pirate.
0: Oh, I suppose it was going after Redmond or something,
1: right? Yeah. It might have been pirate. It might have been like Pi I can't remember, but there was some wackadoo language that you could select as your installer language uh back then and that was Wingdings? No, no. It was like Pirate or, or Redneck or something like that. I'm too
0: old to remember now, but that was, and I was like, this is so
1: awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: I think for me, the the first Linux that I remember using was one of the early Ubuntu's, like Hardy Heron or something of that that age. And it was the Compiz Cube. That was what got me.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was great. Love that thing. My first real, my first real, like Linux love was Mandrake. Uh, that was my first, like when I started that, and then I got into Gen 2 for a long time. Um, and then I got into Yellow Dog Linux, so I started using Yum before before it was cool because uh, Yum, which is now DNF in Fedora, but Yum stands for Yellow Dog Update Manager, and it was this dedicated PowerPC Linux distribution that focused on getting Linux working good on PowerPC Max. And so I was getting old PowerPC Max at the schools and loading Yellow Dog Linux on them and getting like a Linux desktop. And it was great, man. It was really good. They did a great, great job of getting so much software ported to PowerPC and getting like the support dialed in for these PowerPC towers and stuff. It was really sad when that thing shut down. It was a great Linux
0: distribution. You know what I'm sad about as I'm sat here thinking about my kind of formative computer years is it's that stress right of of coming home from school and thinking to yourself right i'm going to reinstall windows tonight yeah and having no backup devices in the house no phones no tablets like that computer is your only way to search the internet yep and if you screw this up you have to wait till you get to school the next day print out some instructions bring them home and hope they work (laughs) jeez